but the people that were caring for the animals, truly caring for them, started to realize it wasn't an endless supply and that they needed to do better. And so things improved, you know, and that came veterinary care and husbandry practices and behavioral management and better facilities and better nutrition. So once we learned all those things, we learned things that could help us take better care of the animals that were being threatened outside in the remaining wild places. And so zoos now have reached a point, accredited zoos and aquariums, that they realize that for a future like this to continue to be there as a place for people to be exposed to, learn about, become educated, intrigued, and maybe even fall in love with wildlife in a city or municipality where they are, there has to be a bigger story and there has to be greater impact. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Is manually updating all the ticket inventory and prices for your resellers a hassle you would rather avoid? You need Redeem's Channel Manager. It allows you to easily manage all of your resellers, including Reserve with Google, from one central online platform. Channel Manager puts you in the driver's seat with more control, more data, and powerful real-time connectivity. Don't wait to get recovery ready. Get centralized today. Go to www.redeem.com slash attractionprosCM to learn more now. That's Redeem, R-E-D-E-A-M. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. <laughs> You're just going to let it sit there, aren't you? See what happens. Okay. Watch what happens. Well, all right. Since you didn't ask, I'm not going to tell you, but I have a question for you. All right. Well, first, how you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> it um, wouldn't be the Attraction Pros podcast without an elongated <laughs> fantastic. I, I guess that's that's um, adhering to our brand. Right. Now, exactly. A genuine brand. Um, but question, do you remember the radio station you listened to when you were in high school? Yes. What was it? Uh, well, it was 89X, 88.7 in Detroit. Uh, when Kelly, Dave, and Chuck the Freak, they were the morning show. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it was alternative rock. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you're ever in Detroit, turn on 88.7. Every time I go back there, I turn it on and it's it's almost... Sometimes it feels like it's frozen in time. Like I, I hear songs. The same songs? Played. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And mixed with some new ones as well. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. What about you? Mine was uh, WMMS in Cleveland, 100.7, okay. The Buzzard. And um, the reason I bring that up is because our guest today also listened to WMMS in Cleveland, Mr. Ted Moulter from the Northeast Ohio region. Um Spent a lot of time in zoos and aquariums, has, has a lot of experience with IAPA, uh, but really, really excited to talk to him about conservation and emotional souvenirs and all kinds of different things that we can all do to help the planet survive. Absolutely. And before we even get into that, on, on the radio thing, I, I, 
I, I think you know this, but and I can't remember what radio station it was, but my grandfather used to be a DJ in Cleveland. Uh, it was back back in the '60s, but he was a he was a popular DJ before moving to Detroit. Yeah, that was before my time listening to uh, the radio in Cleveland. I think so yeah, <laughs> um, but no, I th- I think I knew that because. I always associate in my head, Josh has a great radio voice and it's in his, it's in his DNA, uh, radio and broadcasting. So right. uh, that's really cool. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, isn't that, isn't there some other claim to fame? In, uh, with radio broadcasting? Yeah. Uh, well, after being a DJ in Cleveland, he moved to Detroit and, uh, and when he left radio in Detroit, uh, he opened a broadcasting school that just celebrated its uh, 50th anniversary. Okay, that might yeah. be it. But I thought there was uh, there was something um, associated with that. So very cool. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. Okay. Good. But anyway, Ted Moulter, I most recently was chief marketing officer at the San Diego Zoo in beautiful San Diego, California, uh, and he has recently taken on I think what he described as a mini retirement, if I understand that correctly. Uh, but it'll be amazing to listen to him talk about his experience so many years uh, with San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, as well as prior to that in Cleveland at SeaWorld Ohio, uh, which I I believe closed, was it, it was either 1998, 1999 when uh, when Six Flags came in. Um, And we, well, we could probably do a whole episode on that, on that property's history between SeaWorld, Six Flags, Cedar Fair, and uh, and even prior to that, Geauga Lake independently. Uh, But this conversation is going to be a lot geared towards, we're going to talk about conservation. Uh, we're going to talk about marketing. We're going to talk about evolving consumer perceptions of zoos and aquariums. Uh, and we're going to talk about an interesting topic of emotional souvenirs as well. Absolutely. And we get to get to hear some of Ted's emotional souvenirs. Um, we also get a little bit of history of where zoos came from, which I thought that was really, really interesting and get Ted to uh, look in the crystal ball and talk a little bit about the zoos of the future. So um, without further ado, mm. what do you say we get to this conversation with Ted? Let's do it. Ted Moulter, thank you so much for joining us today on the Attraction Pros podcast. Ted, how are you? I'm great, and it's uh, wonderful to be invited. Thank you so much for setting up this time. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. We are so excited. I know you and I met a long time ago through an IAPA committee. Um, Love the work you've been doing. So can you tell people a little bit about your history in zoos and aquariums? Sure. Well, IAPA is a big thread in that. And I've been involved in IAPA as a board member. Now I'm on my second term as a board member, but I've chaired committees. I've been involved in a lot of the development of the education programs, the certification programs. I, I was so glad to have those opportunities, but even more important, how much it was supported by my organization. Um, the 22 years I spent at San Diego Zoo, they found my involvement with IAPA not only good for me personally, professionally, but it really helped the zoo integrate into that bigger community in a lot of meaningful ways. It gave us some status. Um, I can't encourage people enough to join IAPA and participate in it. The network has a great value. Um, I've met so many friends, but I'm sure will be lifelong friends as a result of it. And it's such a welcoming and friendly community. 
And yes, while there's competition, I like to think of us as competitive partners, and we really do spend a lot more time helping each other out than trying to beat each other up. <laughs> um, so I, I, I've been so pro all of those activities and continue to do it. And, you know, again, there's, there's differences in terms of people's business, whether it's the manufacturers, suppliers, the attractions, the mom and pop shops that run FECs, cultural attractions and not-for-profits. They all come together in that one space and each one is just as valuable as the other. And I think it's an amazing network. Absolutely, absolutely. So thank you for sharing that. I know that you, uh, again, have been involved with that for a long time. So um, can you kind of walk us through a little bit about your history and what you've sure. done even outside of IAPA? Yeah, well, I grew up in Northeastern Ohio and then of course I'm very fortunate to have landed here in San Diego. <clears throat> but I spent that first 30 some years living in Ohio um, with a strong yearning to be involved in marine science or the ocean or something to that degree, which was not easy to access from Ohio other than making some trips to Florida uh, as you often would if you grew up in the Midwest. And of course, enjoying places like SeaWorld, Cedar Point, Kings Island and the parks around Ohio. Um, but I had this strong attraction to animals. And I, I think for me, my, my involvement has been 36 years in zoos and aquariums, and it's always been centered around animals, even though I've been involved in marketing for the larger part of my career. So I had this lifelong fascination. And when I was thinking about college and I was already working at a pet store, taking care of marine fish uh, at that shop, I got to know the curatorial folks <clears throat> at the Cleveland Zoo and SeaWorld of Ohio. And of course, I quiz them like anybody who's enthusiastic about the career of the head of them, how to get a job, how to get a chance to work with animals. And the folks at SeaWorld were, were very nice. They said, look, just get a summer job and remind us that you're there. So when I started college at Kent State, um, I got a summer job at SeaWorld. I was able to get a position in park operations. So I was a, a park operations host and they put me out in the parking lots. So I wasn't even allowed in the park yet. So I worked out in front. We didn't have marked parking lots, they were gravel. So we actually had to park each car individually. And we dubbed ourselves vehicle placement engineers because it sounded a whole lot better than parking lot attendants. But at the time, the whole experience was a bit like going to summer camp. We had teams, we had fun competitions. It was such an enjoyable way to spend the summer. It didn't feel like working at all. <clears throat> and I was really willing to do just about anything for them. And I worked well into the season and then in that fall, my contacts within the animal care division called me up and said, hey, we have an opportunity for you. It's not in the aquarium where you said you wanted to work. It's actually, it's working with penguins and it's inside the penguin encounter. And it's really a window washing job. You're gonna keep the windows clean inside the exhibit. And I said, great, when do I start? Um, and from there, I went on to become an aviculture husbandry assistant. I did get a job in the aquarium. I worked there for several years, became a senior aquarist. And then by the time I graduated college, which was a degree in broadcast communications and a field of concentration in biology, there was an opening in PR. And I used my gift of gab and my past experience to work my way into that and join the PR department. Worked there for several years before finally leaving SeaWorld of Ohio as a director of public relations, moving then to San Diego, not to work with the SeaWorld Park there, but to work with the zoo. And then I spent the next 20 some years working through the public relations and marketing department where I finally arrived at my, my last position there as the chief marketing officer. Got to do some wonderful things and probably the best part of the whole experience was building and working with and nurturing a team. 
Um, and that's the thing, you know, even today as I'm taking on this sort of pause and semi-retirement as they, they call it for a severance, um, that's the part I miss the most. Um, they, they're, and they're doing some extraordinary things and I'm really proud of them. Ted, how do you think that that degree in broadcast communications was able to serve you throughout working in PR and marketing in uh, at, at the theme park at, at SeaWorld as well as at the zoo in San Diego? I'd say very little in terms of what it involved in terms of like running a radio station, which was something I did do on campus. We had a radio station. I was music director for a year. I was program director for a year. Great experience. But what really mattered in that is we were actually, we had a sales division and we could sell advertising and we could do promotions on campus. And so I, I really learned how to sell the radio station more. And I think that's where I started to fall in love with the idea of PR and marketing and understanding communications. And, you know, when you put on an event and people would show up and you'd say, oh, we do have the power to attract them. What we're saying is meaningful. There's people that are attracted to it. So I'd say that piece of it was the, the hands-on experience. All the things in that I read in the books and, you know, what I can tell you about engineering equipment within a, a studio and that is pretty much lost on me completely at this point in time. But, but understanding sales and marketing in that format became valuable. And I'd say the second thing that contributed to it is my dad ran retail carpet stores. And I learned a lot about business operation from his entrepreneurship as a, a sole proprietor. And a lot of things that he told me about how he would go about doing marketing stuck with me for a long time. And they became the way that I focused and did things. So it's a combination of all those experiences. I couldn't hang it on all of everything. Um, I do love radio growing up in Cleveland and we had some really powerful stations like WMS. In fact, <clears throat> my wife who I met at college in the program, she went on to run a high school radio station for several years. And then she worked with various uh, television outfits, almost all of them in Cleveland at one time or another, and actually was the marketing director for WMS at one time as well. So it was always close. It was always in a part of it, but um, uh, getting into PR, I think it was really useful uh, in the aspect of having had that station management experience, the sales and promotion experience to really understand the bigger marketing perspective. And I think to me, it, even as I became CMO, I was always sort of a PR first because I really honestly believe if you don't have reputation in a good position and you're not doing things to enhance that all the time, it doesn't really matter what you spend in advertising and other things to make a difference on that. <clears throat> so Ted, as a former Clevelander, as we talked about before we started uh, recording, it's really great to hear about WMMS because I used to listen to them all the time. Um, the buzzard, right? Yeah, WMMS. That's right. Um, but I'm curious, you mentioned some, some lessons that you took from your father that um, you really kind of used to shape how you do pretty much everything after that. And I think a lot of us do, you know, if we've had positive role models as parents. I'm curious what some of those lessons were that you could, you could take in, and use throughout your career. Sure. Uh, well, one of those was, you know, he was always really adamant about spending 10% of his budget on advertising. Um, cause he said, you know, he'd come in and say, look around the shop. He said, if there isn't anybody in here looking at and taking carpet samples home to try to match up the floor, we have no business. Mm -hmm. Um, so he, he was religious about that and looked at different ways to conduct his advertising. And it was great to be around that and understand it. And I, and I really focused in on that. A lot of it was, there was a lot of hard labor, you know, we'd go in and we would, um, remove carpet 
uh, from a downtown office building and his installers would come replace it. And that was a great job for me to make extra money on a Friday or Saturday night. I'd get like a dollar a yard. And sometimes we'd pull up 300 yards of carpet on a Friday night. And while it, there was that going on, what I did see was how he interacted with people at different levels from the, the custodial people within the building to the office managers, to the people whose offices we were removing, now, all different stations in life. But he really had a great respect for people at each level. And he understood the importance of those connections and the nuance and they were, they were all important and he made them feel that way. And I think that was probably a bigger lesson overall. You know, it was one of those things when I was interviewing for jobs, we've all heard that story. It's like, you know, how you treat the admin that's helping you set this up is just as important as a conversation you have with the hiring manager. And those things really stuck with me. Um, the other thing that really stuck with me was um, how his enthusiasm for things would come across. So uh, it's a SeaWorld story, actually. So when the first animals arrived for SeaWorld of Ohio, they flew in from San Diego on some big cargo planes. And we went to the airport that day to see the animals offloaded. And I was about six or seven years old at the time. And he insisted we went because it was something I demanded to do. And it wasn't until years later that I was able to make the argument and say, look, as a six and seven year old kid with no experience otherwise, how in the heck would I know that that was gonna take place, that it was a thing to do and go there? Because he just had curiosities and interest in all kinds of things. And he just knew that was something he needed to take his son to do. And so he finally admitted to it. He says, yeah, he goes, it was my thing. He said, and sometimes he regretted a little bit. He's like, cause he used to always say, so when are you going to wake up and stop deciding to play with Flipper and get a real job? Um, cause I think he secretly wanted me to be involved in his company, but he couldn't have been more proud than when I had the position at San Diego zoo and was doing things for that. And he, he said to me one day, he says, I hear you talk about per caps and budgets and, and all these terms that I know must be painful for you given where your passion is. He says, but you care so much about animals that you're willing to do all of that. He says, I get it now. And that was a great thing to hear and come full circle on. Yeah. You know, I was just going to ask, and, and maybe you started to, alluded to, uh, to this response a little, but blending your expertise with marketing, PR, and advertising with your passion for animals and conservation, would love to hear you expand on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where when I had to apply for the public relations position, and kind of sell myself, it was a, a big part of saying, hey, look, I'm the inside guy. I've been working directly with the animals and the people at this level, they're the kind of the heroes to the guests and the people that come in. They want to know more. They want to hear from a trainer. They want to hear from a behaviorist, an, an animal care specialist. <clears throat> so I proceeded to start um, more of a marketing program where I did kind of media training for the animal care experts so that they'd be prepared to do interviews um, and then we had a lot of downtime at SeaWorld of Ohio in the off season. So I had more time to develop at that point, which content with, through news reports and agencies, get them interviews and things. We didn't have all the social media and the opportunities where we could just turn it on today. So we had to work harder for it. But I brought credible spokespeople that were well-prepared and well-trained. And so putting that passion for animals, highlighting the, the science, the knowledge, the information, and be able to elevate more people to speak about it was the way that I got that across. Because I'm a PR person, we can assimilate information and we can speak on anything. But it's the credibility, reputation management enhancement that's important. So 
that was one of the things I, I thought was really critical to getting into. And again, where my passion for being involved with animals, meeting the PR communications part of it is where those two things together. So, and then it just kind of grew from that. And I became more familiar with all the other things that we did for marketing communications and understood how it was contributing to the outcome and benefit of the organizations and found more ways to get involved and do it. You know, Ted, you mentioned passion, and there's something I want to uh, bring up from your bio on LinkedIn, uh, which I thought was fantastic. And it says, by working together, we can make a difference for all life on earth. That is a huge statement, right? And, and I think there's so much behind that. So I'd love if you could kind of peel back the onion and tell us what's, uh, what, what that's all about. Well, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, if the last year and a half has taught us so many lessons, you know, we, we understand now better that the issue of this coronavirus came out of a situation where our interactions with, with wildlife were not good or, or well calculated. And when you've had other similar situations like this, it's usually been resolved. You know, we've, we've done so much to expand our place um, and, and this, in this world that we pushed a lot of other species into terrible places. If we don't start taking account for that and making some remediation, it's only going to get worse. And those species that we've displaced, there's very little they can do to help themselves. Um, they did all the things they could millions and millions of years ago when they were evolving. And now we've become this sort of dominant in the wrong way life force on the planet. So yeah, I, I hope we walk away from this and understand, yeah, the climate change issues are real. There's some things we can do about it and we should. Um, I, one thing I've been following very closely, you know, there's a lot of work being done with coral reef restoration and the full understanding now, and they put some prices on it. It's like, if we lose the coral reefs in certain places, these are the economic impacts and they're, they're huge. They're devastating um, to business, but also to people's way of life. Um, we have the highest concentrations of people living in coastal areas all around the world for a lot of, you know, pretty good reasons. Um, that's going to be a challenge. And, you know, I, I think we do have a responsibility. We do need to better understand that it's, it's one planet, one world, and there's a concept right now called One Health, which certainly became prevalent during the pandemic, but we understand that there's an interconnected web of all life. And if you start causing problems for some of it, just like our own bodies, you don't take good care of parts of your body, it starts wearing down, it eventually affects the whole system negatively. So it's a living thing and it needs to be cared for. Yeah. So what are some of the best ways that we can all work together to achieve those goals? Yeah, I mean, and there, there's, there's such a long list and, you know, and unfortunately some things become sort of politicized and the rest of it, but it, it, it really does matter if we do our best to consume and use less. And it doesn't really matter what it is, you know, do your part and make smarter trips, bundle things together, um, eat less meat, you know, it, it, it does have, it does come at a high cost to the environment from growing and shipping and manufacturing. Um, you know, I, I always laugh. I said, you know, I think the dominant most intelligent species on, on planet earth is a cow. Um, it figured out how to make it tasty. Uh, it made itself tasty and desirable and we've gone and made them more successful than they would have been if left to their own devices. Um, so, you know, it, it, I get a chuckle out of it as well, but you know, the reality is these are the things that we've done and, and kind of looked at it. Um, 
reduce packaging. I know that's hard right now because we've added so many other layers of plastic and cleaning and all these other things. I'm hoping that will subside. Uh, but microplastic is everywhere. It's in the ocean. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Plastic wasn't around 60 years ago. And now it is everywhere. Um, and there's lots of markers on it. So, you know, again, we have to make some real changes, but it's got to be behavior. And it's got to be behavior that sticks. Um, and it has to be behavior people want to do. You know, I don't think penalizing and taxing and all these other things are necessarily always a solution to it. It can help get things started, but people really have to want to make a difference. So find those things that are important to you, find those things that you can achieve and find those things where you can continue to do them. And it's probably about doing even something small, but doing it consistently over time, right? Instead of trying to have this one big effort, you do something small and that develops a habit. And then that develops, you know, uh, a better influence to other people as well. Well, and the influence of other people is really important. It's modeling something, you know, and getting other people to say, okay, I, I can do that too. But that the story on that one that always kind of fascinates me a little bit is this whole notion of how hanging up your towel in a hotel room became a behavior that people do. And it's like the three of us can all check into hotel rooms and we can all choose to do this, but we don't get to see it. And I don't have any proof that you did it or anything, but it has made a difference. It's less detergent, less water. It reduces extra work and labor in that hotel, but it does make a difference. I mean, less consumption of anything makes a difference, but people do that voluntarily. And it's, it's interesting the behavior about it because we don't get to see it from each other. We just kind of assume that's going on. So, boy, if we could create more of those kind of moments and what we're choosing to do, and it's, it's an easy one. It makes sense. People understand it pretty well and go, hey, I do this at home. Why can't I do it at a hotel? I think what we're going to find out is hotels are going to ask us to do a lot more for ourselves in the future as they're reducing the housekeeping staff and the costs associated with it. So say goodbye to the mini bar. You're going to hang up your towel whether you want to, and you probably have to make your own bed yeah. <laughs> if you want it done. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of businesses that are announcing a lot of new initiatives and, and launching many things. Starbucks, you know, phasing out plastic straws and, you know, many, many others similarly. But at the same time, you know, we, we see increases in packaging, like you mentioned, the amount of plastic. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of cardboard I've seen in the last year just because of just the amount of products shipped and, and thinking of the, you know, trying to make sure those go in the recycle bin, uh, you know, and, and make sure it's being put to good use. So, are we headed in the right direction with the intention that everyone seems to be on board with, or is the problem continuing to get worse? Unfortunately, the problems continue to get worse. I mean, I think one of the things you're starting to see more and more is these, I should say, good on you for recycling, but understand about 75% of that still ends up in a landfill. So, you're doing the best you can by making that choice to divert your trash and it's helping, but it really starts on the other end is, is when does the packaging get made and used to begin with? Um, and as we're shipping more and more things um, and not going to the store or something like that, you're, you're ending up with much more packaging. So there should become more efficient packaging, more durable things. But I mean, I laugh, we go to Costco and we bought two dozen apples and they come in this plastic case that circles each one of them. It's like, well, we can save one or two of those to store our Christmas ornaments in, <laughs> you know, but after that, what am I gonna do with them, right? So 
you know, it's like, okay, maybe I won't buy my apples that way. Maybe I'll go to, you know, like a, a food stand or something like that. It takes a little more effort. It can be done. We're busy. We look for shortcuts. We want efficiencies and we want things that support us in, in our life and choosing to work and, you know, be good citizens and everything. But we become very, very heavily reliant on things that maybe we can. So consumers are going to ultimately decide. Businesses are going to choose based on what they do. But, you know, I don't, I don't see... I don't see the, the street revolt over Apple casings like the new soccer league caused in Europe yesterday. You know, I mean, it's just the very, very different in terms of public reaction, what people's passions are. Yeah. Yeah. So Ted, I'd like to uh, switch gears just for a minute, because when we were together at the uh, last IAPA conference, you mentioned a new report that you're working on that really sounded like it could be a real help as people are recovering. So I'm, I'm hoping you can give us a little background on that and, and kind of tell us where we can find out more information. Sure. So, so some of my contacts in the network, when they found out I was um, kind of taking my exile on Marine Street, which is what I, I'm back to taking care of aquariums, if you will, um, and just sorting things out, taking a bit of a break. I think I, I really did feel like I was getting burned out and was really grateful for this opportunity that you presented with the severance. And so a friend of mine who I'd known for a long time, a fellow by the name of John Morey, who uh, has been specializing in doing um, data gathering for cultural attractions using aquariums, mostly visitor incept and, and accumulating visitor data to help those entities, mostly not for profits, make decisions about their marketing programs or membership programs and help them run more efficiently. So he called me up and he said, hey, I know you're looking for new things to do. Um, he had purchased into a performance uh, product and we're calling it the Digital Performance Group. And it's using data from Uber Media. And what Uber Media does, as you can imagine, is they, they an offshoot of that company, they're tracking things digitally. So where do phones go and you know where, where can they be seen? So we can find patterns in people's behavior, much like the data that populates Waze or any of your GPS guidance systems. You know, it requires aggregated data. It doesn't pick you and me out of each other. But it does show that there's a lot of people traveling this way on the highway and we can divert you this way to save you a couple of minutes. So what, what our, our digital uh, performance group does, if you have a facility, we can go in and say, here's what's happened in the last 18 months with people coming and going to your facility. We can show the activity within your facility. So you see high concentrations at the front gate or certain exhibits and attractions. We can also say, well, with the 30 minutes before they visited, 30 minutes after, here's where they went and here's where they came from. So you can see which routes. So pretty much anything that someone would take their phone around to do and what it does is anytime they open an app, like look at the weather channel or something else that they've chosen to engage in, it records a, a data point. So it looks at really trillions of data pieces, but you can hone that into something and, and help an FEC or help a zoo, help an aquarium picture something about themselves and then we can do an ad campaign digitally to deliver ads directly to those people that qualify. Maybe they shop, have an affinity for shopping at this grocery store and it might lead you down a path of creating a partnership with them or doing a promotional campaign. So the idea is really to find a way to assist zoos, aquariums, cultural attractions and, and FECs. I think it's got great potential for to get your marketing dollars to go a little bit further with something that we've determined is a little bit more guaranteed. Um, 
And part of what we're doing too is for those that will start with a program um, that reaches a certain level, probably about a $20,000 spend, we'll run that program and you can run it three months, six months, a year if you want. And if it fails to bring back the per cap revenue that you would expect from it, we'll refund the difference. So a $20,000 campaign that performs to $10,000, we'll give you $10,000 back if it doesn't meet that. That's, that's how good we feel about what it's doing. And so right now, it, it's kind of not a lot of people biting on it, but a lot of interest. And it makes sense because pent-up demand is bringing lots of people to everybody's gate. But that's going to change real soon. And so you're going to have to go back to finding ways to be competitive. And this will just give you something that's as close to a guarantee of finding your audience and finding incremental audience and lots of creative ways to do that. So we're excited about it. We've got a couple uh, entities that we're working with that are enthusiastic about it. And um, we'll have more to report on in the future. But again, anybody that wants to contact me, um, they can just send me a, a, an email uh, at ted at d. B, D, I'm sorry, dpgads.com, ted at dpgads.com. And um, I'll be happy to, to get in touch with you, look at a report and share some data with you that can really make a difference for your facility. Yeah, that's really interesting. So so using all these data points from external uh, sources and, and really it sounds like it's all passive data that the consumers are doing on their own. Right. Uh, how do you then align that or, or what are the other data streams that it should be aligned with in terms of it should connect it with point of sale data, look at, um, you know, TripAdvisor, consumer perception, survey data, things like that. What are the best ways to, to maximize the data that you'd be getting from that program and make it specific to the individual uh, business or entity? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about it is, you know, if you break it out and you look at, you know, basically where someone's living, or if you can determine certain things about ethnicity, you can compare that to other data that you have already so that you know that it's stacking up correctly with it. Or if you happen to find an anomaly, we can start asking some more questions about why it doesn't line up with other measurements you've taken. Mostly what we find there is a missed opportunity um, and a chance to help somebody reach an audience that might've been just hiding a little bit, not intentionally or anything to that degree. But yeah, you're right. In terms of the data being agnostic, it like, can't distinguish the three of us from each other in that regard. And, and again, it's really as simple as if you open up a Weather Channel app right now to look at the weather, that's where an ad would probably be served as well. But you know, it's, it's information you've requested. You've asked for something to come to you, and that's what records the data. Um, and it uses about 14,000 different applications wow. that it pulls data in from. So when we put a report together, it sifts through and filters trillions of data points to kind of figure out what it is and create a profile and a picture of the people that are visiting or could visit that facility. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, maybe a partnership with a grocery store or something as you see, you know, kind of where your users congregate. Um, and that leads me to one of the questions that I definitely wanted to make sure that we talk about, which is about marketing challenges, specifically for zoos and aquariums and cultural attractions, because, you know, there's been a lot of things in the news and a lot of people, you know, have one way or, you know, or the other about animals in captivity and things like that. And I can imagine that's just a, it's a hard story to tell sometimes. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on that. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things too, it's just, it's, it's a response to social responsibility that we're looking at in so many different ways right now. Um, 
you know, the, yesterday's decision in the trial of the police officer is one of those outcomes that that's showing us, you know, we're, we're changing. Um, that's making a difference. And so, you know, again, zoos, when they originally were conceived of, I'll talk about that for a minute, they were called menageries. They were a collection of animals that, let's face it, well-to-do people that could travel the world brought things back to showcase and share with the citizens in that community and get them excited about the world at large. And if something happened to those animals, they just go out and get some more. But the people that were caring for the animals, truly caring for them, started to realize it wasn't an endless supply and that they needed to do better. And so things improved, you know, and that came veterinary care and husbandry practices and behavioral management and better facilities and better nutrition. So once we learned all those things, we learned things that could help us take better care of the animals that were being threatened outside in the remaining wild places. And so zoos now have reached a point, accredited zoos and aquariums, that they realize that for a future like this to continue to be there as a place for people to be exposed to, learn about, become educated, intrigued, and maybe even fall in love with wildlife in a city or municipality where they are, there has to be a bigger story and there has to be greater impact. And so what's been happening, and I can speak to San Diego Zoo for almost 40 years, they've been involved in conservation research globally um, and doing things with partners around the globe to make a difference. And that's why we were possibly involved in helping save the California condor. It went from 22 animals you know, in the 1980s <clears throat> to well over 500 now, and half of those are flying around again. So that's a great success story. Not all of them follow that path, but it, there's lots involved in it. Giant pandas are another one we were involved in made a big difference once we understood how they reproduced. And our colleagues in China went from two offspring a year to 20 or 30 in the panda reserves there. And now they're actually contemplating returning those animals to wildlife preserves that they've created as a result of some of the money they've collected. Um, so there's good outcomes to it. Um, but yeah, you, you can go see an attraction that has animals and they may say all the right things, but go find one that's doing it and is held accountable. And so the members of AZA are held accountable and they're accredited um, and they have to maintain those standards by doing enhancement, making a difference. So one of the things that happened with San Diego Zoo before I left is I'd initiated a rebranding for the corporate identity, which ultimately got announced just after the first of the years, the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Uh, had been San Diego Zoo Global, which spoke to the larger global mission, but the alliance is now more open and, being, and to see welcoming us. We need to partner with more people, more entities, more like-minded uh, conservation organizations, facilities, partners, sponsors, whatever it is, to try to make a difference. So there's really room for all that want to get involved, mm -hmm. um, and that's how we'll make a difference. And San Diego Zoo, because of its notoriety, is in a good position to attract those people, resources, and efforts. Yeah. I think that's really interesting, and, and particularly everything that San Diego Zoo has done to promote conservation uh, uh, efforts and, and all of those initiatives. Uh, you have probably seen uh, the whole spectrum of consumer perceptions of zoos and aquariums over the last 30 years. And particularly over the last 10 years or so, there's just been this massive shift from, uh, you know, from voices from, from outside the industry, uh, expressing opinions, expressing their thought, and, and a lot of them expressing anger, tying that in with everything that you just said about what San Diego Zoo has done and, and that, that rebranding at the beginning of the year. And from a marketing and PR standpoint, uh, 
how have you been able to combat the voices from the opposition coming in from the outside? Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I mean, one of the things that we really strive for um, in our public relations program was to always make sure that no matter what was going on, we were generating some good news about change, you know, where we were making difference, what's going on. And it wasn't that <clears throat> San Diego Zoo wasn't occasionally attacked or, or you know, the, the sort of extremist uh, what they would call animal activists, extremists, um, and I won't list or mention names, you can imagine that for yourself, but people with a different opinion. So there's two things that go on. You know, one is you don't want to overreact to those claims. You certainly don't want to restate it. And you want to have enough of your other goodwill developing in, in all that regard and be accountable to third parties, be able to have all those things and just do that all the time, not when you're having to defend yourself. Um, and we found in many cases that it also became important to listen to them. Um, there's a point there, you know, it does suggest things. And I can't say that over the years, we didn't respond in different ways in terms of how we made choices about the next wave of animal care or management, or even down to which species we would continue to house at the facilities or where things were made. <clears throat> but, you know, by and large, a lot of these organizations, they exist simply to create noise and, and cause controversy and they get funding from people by the more visibility they create for themselves. You can't really go back to them and find out that they've done anything that did make a difference with their resources, where they saved a species or helped set aside land or involved in anything that made a difference for those. So <clears throat> there's lots of ways to get things done. That's their way, this is our way. And our way is really definable as resources, time and expertise spent to actually helping make a difference for wildlife. Um, as more and more that happens and you maintain the reputation and continue to be the place that connects and alerts people to it. And really the fundamental shift at San Diego Zoo was the San Diego Zoo and, and the Safari Park were two well-known visitor facing attractions where people could come and engage with wildlife that were involved in doing conservation. The switch for San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is that San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance is a conservation organization that also happens to run to really well-known zoos. So it's flipping the script, but it's also prioritizing the message and vision differently and say, we're gonna be conservation first in what we do and constantly strive for it. And the, there is a benefit of this two front doors of the zoo and the safari park where people come interact with it, but it has to be much bigger than that. If it's just about maintaining those properties and generating revenue and keeping an attraction going, it's not enough. And, and that's really what they're saying. Um, and that's what they're striving for. And I think that's the best defense you can put up to any kind of criticism. There's gonna be criticism and it's gonna to continue to be the case and it's probably gonna get worse. I mean, I, I anticipate there'll be, uh, you know, th this notion of cancel culture that'll come and say, you know, zoos are an antiquated idea need to go away. We saw it happen with circuses. We've seen, you know, these other things. Things are shifting, but maybe the zoos of the future won't really be zoos anymore. Maybe it'll be something altogether different as a conservation center, um, and they'll be revered in a different way and not constantly poked at and prodded because of a difference of ideological thoughts or considerations. Uh, so I, I think there's 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 great hope for it, and and really there isn't anybody else that's filling that void. You know, nature documentaries and programs do inform, and I think they're good augmentations to it. 
but we're really pretty passive about that. You know, David Attenborough is a wonderful spokesperson, but he, he can't go out and save the world's wildlife by himself. Um, and the production companies put on the shows, but it's a great entree to get people engaged and excited. And we need all those things working together. Uh, but zoos are really doing it. Zoos are really putting the dollars out there, the expertise and making a difference with the partners that they've accumulated. Yeah, Ted, you mentioned uh, conservation and that being, you know, that really the, the, um, the forefront of people's thought when it comes to zoos and specifically zoos of the future. And I'm curious if you can, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, think 20, 30 years in the future, what do you think a zoo looks like at, at that point? Um, well, we've, we've, we've done this exercise a bunch of times and, and I tell you, conservation is a tough word, even for people that are involved in conservation, because it can mean so many different things. Um, what I think if it were to work out perfectly is together with zoos and, and the, all the, the, the medical systems that are in place to keep us, that there's a combination and a really good understanding that it is about one health. It's a health for all living things on the planet. And it doesn't matter if it's a person, an elephant or an ant, we need to be able to have a balance among all of those things for the health of the planet. It can't just be, we got to keep humans alive because we'll fail if that's the approach that we take. So zoos will continue to be educators. They'll continue to be a different kind of activist, if you will. And what I think zoos hope to do is be models, change behavior, get people engaged in doing things and making other choices that will contribute to overall health for all life on earth, not just animals living at a zoo mm -hmm. or us taking care of ourselves on a daily basis. I mean, it's a little discouraging just to see how we've come out of this pandemic in a very uneven sense. We don't even really have it together with consistency and continuity of how we're taking care of ourselves. Um, the resistance for some people to get vaccines, I get they're making their choice, but it's a little bit selfish in my opinion um, because it, it creates a challenge for, for everyone. Um, and yeah, I, I get the, the sheep mentality or whatever label people want to put on top of it, but we're using good science to attack a problem that we helped create. Um, and there is an opportunity for us to get better and do better. Um, and so we, we have, but we, we just have so many disagreements and valleys between us in some cases that really make it hard, but we have to keep trying. Yeah. One of the things that, um, we talked about a little bit uh, before we started the official interview was the phrase emotional souvenir. And we're wondering if you can expand a little bit on that, uh, maybe where you heard that and how that has woven into uh, what has driven your efforts as well. Yeah, emotional souvenir became a term we were introduced to by our friends at ThinkWell. Um, they, they assisted us with our, our planning and execution of the Zeus Centennial Celebration in 2016. Um, and one of the things we endeavored to do was create a big celebration about the beginning of, of our history, which started in Balboa Park, which is where the zoo, San Diego Zoo is located. And there was a Pan America exposition that occurred because San Diego didn't get the World's Fair that year, San Francisco did. What they were hoping to do is capitalize on the opening of the Panama Canal and people coming through their west and San Diego being their first port they'd come to. And so they said, all right, well, fine. They're going to do the World's Fair. We're going to do our own thing. They did the Pan America Exposition and really created the cultural center in Balboa Park. 
And when it was over, there were a couple of animals there's exhibit, most notably a lion, some wolves, and some other things. And a physician in San Diego by the name of Harry Wegaforth started the zoo with those animals. And our founding story is it began with a roar. It's because Dr. Harry had heard the roar of the lions left over from the expo and started the San Diego Zoo in Belleville Park. So when we, when we wanted to celebrate 100 years of that moment to where we'd come, uh, Thinkwell introduces the idea of an emotional souvenir is that if we're successful at everything we do, and people come to the zoo or come to our big centennial event, they'll walk away with this powerful, impactful memory that would be an emotional souvenir for them. Um, and especially in terms of the outdoor event that we did that were attended by about 15,000 people in Balboa Park, it was free to anybody that wanted to come was our thank you to the community. Um, they weren't paying for anything. So the emotional souvenir had to be the thing they walked away with. And, and it just made us become very much aware of the things that we've been doing for a long time. And, you know, like, like all of us growing up in the Midwest, we had Cedar Point and Kings Island and the SeaWorld Park and other things. And I'm sure we remember going there with our families to go have an experience, have a shared experience, make a memory. And that was our emotional souvenir. So we've known about them for a very, very long time. I guess we just didn't know what to call them. And so I just, I just love this term because I think it, it just does a great job of defining what zoos, aquariums, cultural attractions, FECs, large and small attractions and water parks all give people that opportunity to create an emotional souvenir. Yeah. And, and Ted, again, hearing you talk about Cleveland and SeaWorld and, and Geauga Lake and, and um, uh, Cedar Point, you know, absolutely a lot of emotional souvenirs for me growing up there. I'm curious if there's any that you can remember, any emotional sou souvenirs from growing up in that area that uh, you could share with us. Oh, there's, there's almost too many to name, but it's like, yeah, I mean, I can think of, you know, the first time I was tall enough to ride the Blue Streak. Um, <laughs> I remember going to Kings Island and riding the beast and thinking it was the most amazing roller coaster and then nothing could possibly beat this. And I'm sure there's people that still think that's the case. Um, you know, there, there were so many great things that came out of that experience, but mostly what I remember is, you know, my family making it a point to go to those places. And, and we did every summer. It was, it was part of what we did and part of our experience. Um, and then, of course, SeaWorld, you know, it, it has a special place for me even beyond working there. It's almost like a pinch me moment that I got to work there. But um, I went there for my after prom. Um, I went there, uh, you know, every spring, very close to opening day each year that it that it started. But um, I even have a, a letter that I kept when I was 11 years old and I started my first saltwater aquarium. Um, I had a, an animal in my tank that was also in one of the tanks at SeaWorld. So I wrote to the curator and he sent me back a typed letter with an inventory of all the animals that lived in that 300,000 uh, gallon aquarium. Um, and I've kept it to this day because someone paid attention to a simple request that I had. And it was meaningful. And, you know, that that was a good brand builder in my mind. You know, what what people at SeaWorld cared enough about me to do that. Um, and of course, you know, the, the trip to the airport to watch the animals unloaded the very first time was pretty amazing too. Yeah. How important are those emotional souvenirs, not, not just for you, but as far as what we are providing to people as an industry and particularly uh, over the last year that we have not been able to provide or get as many of those emotional souvenirs as we otherwise would, uh, you know, we talk about the concept of, of escapism and, uh, and as far as, you know, what, what it is that people are paying for, you know, how, how much 
uh, importance does that have as far as what we do and making sure that people are getting those emotional souvenirs? Yeah, I'd say if anything, this year was more emotional scars, right? You know, that's what we're dealing with. Um, I think it's really important because in much of our lives, our day-to-day dealings are transactional. Um, you know, I'll go online to find a product or something that I need or want because I, I got to get it to solve a problem or something broke or whatever it is. And that's just transaction. It's got to fulfill a need that I have right now that I got to take care of. The thing about a, a visit to an attraction is you've taken this very precious leisure time that you have and you've overcome the barriers of all the other wants and needs in your life and maybe even priorities to take a break, to go do something intentionally with your family. And there is a transaction that occurs, but what you get back is bigger than the transaction. That's that memory, that's that emotional souvenir. That's that break from all the other things. And because so many of these places are themed, they're designed to create a different environment and a place for you to get out of yourself, you know, and feel like once you walk through that turnstile, you've entered another place um, where you can leave all that other stuff out in the parking lot and beyond and just be and be present. Mm -hmm. Um, I know one of the things we always talk about in zoos a lot of times is adding technology and you know, it's hard in outdoor locations in some cases, and it's always there, but, you know, do we want people walking around the zoo looking at their phone or we want them looking at the trees and the plants and the animals? And part of the reason they come there, and many parents tell us that, is like, we like coming to the zoo because it gets our kids off their devices. So, you know, a place where you intentionally come to disconnect and you know that that's possible and is likely to occur, that can be hard to find. Um, and you know, those, those devices consume an awful lot of our time and attention. Um, and it, it's frustrating and, and it's addictive and all the other things that go with it. And I think we're smart enough to even know and understand why, but if you can intentionally separate that and go to a place that makes that easier and better, well, that's just amazing. Yeah. You know, Ted, earlier you were talking about one of your favorite things was building a team. And as I'm thinking about emotional souvenirs, I'm thinking about how important it is for employees to be able to, to provide emotional souvenirs. And that's certainly something I heard during this pandemic is, you know, yes, you know, the guests were sitting at home and maybe couldn't experience the attraction, but employees were too right? Or they didn't have the guests to entertain and that's part of their DNA. So can you talk a little bit about how you, you um, led teams to provide the emotional souvenir and how important that is to be able to give as well as receive? Sure. Well, you know, one thing that I think this is a, a really important uh, uh, element is I was asked about some things with branding the other day and I said, you know, uh, branding belongs to the audience. It's what lives in their head and in their heart. Hopefully your employees are aligned with them as well on that. And so, you know, branding isn't a responsibility that solely belongs to the marketing department or a brand manager. It's really everybody's job. And it doesn't matter what job you do for that organization, you're a brand ambassador. So wearing the uniform, uh, extending the greeting in the language or parlance of that particular park or facility, how you greet people, how you answer their questions and how you treat them are all part of uh, components of delivering on that brand. One of the things that happened with San Diego Zoo, and I can tell this story to demonstrate it, is when we went from Zoological Society of San Diego to San Diego Zoo Global, we knew it said something about us being bigger than the two facilities in San Diego. And people that knew us said, oh, I get it. You're doing things in other countries, and that's great. What we 
didn't know was going to happen is when we talked to our employees about it, what it started to mean to them, they felt elevated, like beyond the gates of the zoo to be part of San Diego Zoo Global. It had a bigger meaning. And then when we thought about it more and said, well, what's the promise of it? We said, we're going to be the group that leads the fight to end extinction. And what was so amazing about that audacious term, because it's, you know, you can't really end extinction. And it's weird because it's two, two negatives, end and extinct and everything. But it was sort of magical and transformation because what happened, just by the nature of the passion and the commitment that people made to being part of the place and the brand, it elevated to a new level. And so what happened is almost overnight, everybody, whether they were a scientist, an animal keeper, a PR person, someone who worked in park operations, ticket seller, food and beverage, they all understood that their job, their component was doing something to lead the fight to end extinction. They all had their own narrative and understanding of it. And when they were asked by somebody outside, they could tell you specifically what they were doing to lead the fight to end extinction. And we didn't tell them to do it. We didn't force them. We didn't require them. They wanted to. And so it was really almost a magical transformation. And it just reminded me that when things are real and genuine and authentic, you don't have to work hard to make them happen or, or get it across. And then the proof came is when we'd be visited by colleagues from other zoos, they'd always come a day early and they'd go see what you're doing. And they would talk to our employees and inevitably there'd be a conversation where they go and say, we don't understand how you do it. Well, how you do what? How do you get them to say that? We're like, what are you talking about? Every employee we talk to, when we ask them what you're doing, they tell us we're here to lead the fight to end extinction. And then when we ask them, well, how are you going to do that? They go one species at a time. I said, we don't tell them to do that. They want to tell you that. It means that much to them. And they're glad you asked. Yeah. So I, I think that any brand can find that if they're true to form, they're true to their essence. And the folks that work there and are part of it will want to tell the story and be a part of it too. I think that's so cool of being able to create that message that the that every single employee buys into and really wants to be a part of that and be a part of that story and tell their version of the story. Uh, so many times I, I hear people say that they they uh, feel frustrated because they feel like they're they're just a, a cog in the wheel and just you know just playing such a small role. And it sounds like what you're describing that that everyone feels like they have so much ownership not in just making San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park successful, but that commitment to the world and, and adding that, that global context to it. So uh, thank you for sharing that. It's really, uh, really inspiring to hear that. And I think it's a, a great note to end on as well. So Ted, uh, as we wrap this up here, if people want to uh, get a hold of you directly or if they want to say hi on the socials, I know you gave your email address earlier, but feel free to, uh, to give it again here. Uh, let us know where uh, people can find you. Sure. No, I'm happy to, to be in touch with people. Um, you can also use, I think the easier one more direct is, is ted.molter, T-E-D dot M-O-L-T-E-R at iCloud.com. But also if you're looking for assistance on the, the digital marketing program, it's dpgads.com, ted at dpgads.com. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share that with folks. And I hope we can make a difference for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Ted, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time today and so glad that we had the chance to chat with you. And uh, for everyone who is out there watching and listening, uh, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.